we've been going through, the, going through the Gospel of Matthew from Advent, Christmas, to Easter, birth, nativity, all the way to resurrection. And in the midst of this, this series, the book of Matthew is showing us. The book of Matthew is part of the Bible. The Bible as a whole is revelation. It reveals God. Behold our God, we sang, right? The book of Matthew is answering a particular question, and it's answering that question from a particular vantage point. Who is this Jesus? You see, lots of people have lots of ideas about Jesus. They did in the first century. They do today. Who is Jesus really? I remember there was a book Philip Yancey wrote many years ago. I kind of played off that book title for my, for, 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 for my message today. And, and that book was called The Jesus I Never Knew. And as he read through the Gospels, he was surprised at what he saw and the grace that he saw that went so far beyond his normal church culture expectations about Jesus and about what it was that that. God expected, required, would have for him to do. He, he was surprised by this gracious, merciful, forgiving Jesus, a Jesus he never knew. Who is Jesus really? Now, there are, there are popular views. He was, just, he was a good man. He was a, he was a good teacher, had a lot of good stuff to say. You know, it may, maybe it all doesn't apply today because times have changed, you know, but it was interesting. It's worth considering. That's the popular view today. There's, there's, there's sort of an orthodox theological view that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity. All of that is true. And yet, we can sort of keep Jesus at a safe distance in our theology. But the Gospels don't really allow for that. Jesus intruded into a very unsafe distance and left us to decide who is Jesus really. Why does that matter? As you read your Bible, I hope like Philip Yancey, you're surprised at who Jesus is really. Does he really care about me? Does he really care about the stuff that you're going through? Would he do anything about it? Will he? Should you even bother to ask? Does he care about the circumstances? Does he care about the pain or the grief of the present? Stuff comes at me. Things happen. Do I need to be afraid of what is happening or what might happen? My perspective on who Jesus is, who our God is, behold our God, affects that. Can he forgive? Can God in Jesus really forgive me? Oh, well, he's God. If he, certainly he can. Will he? Will Jesus forgive me knowing me as I do? Can you actually not merely be forgiven, technically okay, but actually embraced? Let's say when, when all is done and there you are with the redeemed in heaven, will you be there just because God has to be gracious in Jesus and so he'll forgive you? Yep, that's the deal. But will he enjoy you? What do you think? Our own perspective of ourselves twists that. Our own perspective of who Jesus really is affects our anticipation of what is it to be in his presence. 
will I shirk back in fear or shame or embarrassment? Or can I run into his arms fully, confidently expecting a warm embrace? Who is Jesus really? Matthew 5 to 7, Jesus sort of gives his platform for the kingdom. He is the king. He is the Messiah. And this is his kingdom. That kingdom that we pray, thy kingdom come, this is what it's going to be like. These are the principles. This is the platform of the kingdom. And Jesus doesn't lay it out so the people will say, okay, yeah, we'll vote for you. No, this is how it's going to be. In chapters 8 and 9, we see the Jesus of that kingdom. We see the Messiah. We see more of him personally now as he leaves from that time, that long discourse of teaching, chapters 5 to 7, and now he steps into it. And it sort of puts flesh on the, scale, on the frame, so to speak, when he lives out who he is in ways that we need to see. And so I want to go down the list. I want to track through these chapters, actually kind of quickly, chapters 8 and 9. I want to point out, there's, there's a whole series of events, but they're all tied together. In fact, I'd encourage you later. I'm, I'm not going to lay this out now, but there's some structure to it. Matthew has tied this whole unit, these two chapters, all of these events, all of these travels. He's intentionally tied them together. And as you do that, you'll see, hey, there's, there's the, this happens here, and then something like that happens over here. And something happens here, and it happens again here. And that's, that actually drives to a center point that we'll see as well. But So spend some time, after we've talked about it this morning, spend some time just dwelling in this chapter, looking for, Lord, write it on my heart, who is Jesus really? Father, would you do that? Would you open your word to us now? Would you do as, as, as your psalmist prayed? Lord, open our eyes. Open the eyes of our heart, Lord, that we might see and understand wonderful things from your word, things about our Savior that we desperately need to know and live in. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, in the first four verses, Jesus is the Savior of the hopeless. Look at verses 1 to 4. When, when Jesus came down from the mountain, so we just had this teaching on the mountain, the Mount of Beatitudes, uh, chapters 5 to 7. He comes down from the mountain, and great crowds are following him. He is popular. And behold... A leper came to him. Well, that's awkward. Because nobody's supposed to be around a leper. And you can imagine the crowds <gasps> draw back. Ooh, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. The leper is quite confident that he can, but will he? And that's often where we wonder too, isn't it? Does God really care enough about me to do anything about it? Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will. We're going to come back to that touch a little bit later. I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. Don't just go out there and declare, I've been clean. This is wonderful. Everything's changed. No, Moses wrote about this. The cleansing of a leopard was to be recognized by the priest, and the priest was to examine him and affirm officially, yes, he has been cleansed. And there's an offering to be offered in the cleansing of a leper because, because that leprosy uh, was, was one of those object lessons of what sin has done to humanity, rotting away at us. 
And so the law described this in, in, in a ritual that had never been used. I can imagine when, when this leper shows up at the temple, knocks on the door, asks to see a priest, which is awkward because people know that he was a leper. What's, what's going on here? And he says, well, I, I was a leper, but now I've been cleansed, and so I need to go through the process of, of inspection and to bring my offering. And the priest doesn't even know where to go. He doesn't even know where to turn in the book. It's like, I've never used that passage. Where is that again? I think it's Leviticus something here. I don't know. He's never used that passage, but now, now he must. I can see Jesus smiling to himself as the leper goes his way to go and find the priest. Yeah, let's see if he can even find it. What is that going to, going to do? Jesus is concerned not merely about healing him. He said there's more to it than that. But this man now being healed of his leprosy is going to be fully restored to his rightful fellowship within the community. He's not just healed, but he's brought back into the family. Even as we are not just forgiven, but we are brought back into, we are reconciled into right and a harmonious relationship with the God who made us and that he made us for. That's what's going on in this leper, just in those four verses. Not only can Jesus, but he will. And when, you, and when you go to the next, uh, there's, there's a new problem, a new wrinkle entered into the mix. When Jesus entered Capernaum, so he comes down off the mountain, and Capernaum is not very far away, but when you're walking, it is a walk. As he entered Capernaum, there's a centurion there, and he come, came forward appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and as I say to one, go, and he goes, to another, come, and he comes, to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. He said to those who followed him, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you that many will come from the east and west and recline at the at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom, those who should have been its, its heirs, those who should have received it, the Israelites who were physical descendants of Abraham will be thrown into outer darkness in that place where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth because they didn't have faith like this Gentile had. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. When he got home, the servant had already been healed. When did it happen? Well, I think it was about 40 minutes ago. Well, actually, he just checked his watch. At that moment, by distance, because that matters for us, doesn't it? We are not wandering the streets of Capernaum with Jesus. We are here. And Jesus physically, as a man among us, is not. And yet he said, I will be with you always. I will never leave you or forsake you. And by whatever distance, across whatever span, Jesus has the authority to work his will. It doesn't matter. It's, it's, it's as many from east to west are going to recline at Abraham's table. Wasn't the, wasn't the Abrahamic blessing, the, the, the Abrahamic covenant, wasn't that, that in Abraham all the nations of the earth would be blessed? And whether they're from China or Persia 
or India or Babylon or Myanmar or Kazakhstan or Greece or Rome or Greenland or North America, even Portland, Oregon. As far away as that, there is room at the table. The distances are nothing to him. We worked in a radio ministry for many years, Transworld Radio, that, that the gospel could cross those barriers, could penetrate into the room, in, inside a small house, in the middle of a small village, in the middle of nowhere, where there were no missionaries and the gospel was not heard except on that radio program. And people came to faith in Jesus Christ as a result. The word of God, Paul told Timothy, is not bound. Jesus is the savior of the hopeless. He has authority over across distance. He is sovereign over illnesses and demonic oppression. Look at verse 14. In verse 14, when Jesus entered Peter's house, which is in Capernaum, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. So there you have it. Peter was apparently married if he had a mother-in-law. Lying sick with a fever, he touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. Look at how being healed, being restored, being made whole leads to serving him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all those who were sick. There's often a connection between illness and demonic activity. And we're going to see as well, there's, there's sometimes a connection between illness or some infirmity as well as sin. And I think those three circle together. We saw that right out in front of us in India, that uh, there, there will be times when in sin we give the enemy a spiritual foothold. And that causes some kind of demonic influence as well. We give him permission to sort of rent a room in the house. And it might play out in one way or another. So there's some inner interaction to that that we're going to unpack more as we go through this series and into the next one. But it's worth just pointing out for now. But that Jesus is Lord over all of that. Whether it's physical, whether it's spiritual, Jesus has authority and he delivers them from it. And he quotes... Isaiah 53, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. He took our griefs and he bore our sorrows, Isaiah says. That's what Matthew was quoting there. He's witnessed by Moses, by Abraham, and now by the prophets. And it's in response to this, the crowd around him saw all these things. And the crowd is growing, so Jesus says it's time for us to go. There, there are more people to see, places to go, people to see. He gave orders to go to the other side, the other side of the Sea of Galilee. A scribe came up to him and said, I'll go with you. I'll follow you anywhere. And there's the point where it says it's going to cost you something. It might cost you something. There will be sacrifice along the way because foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head Another disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus says to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now that sounds very heartless, doesn't it? Why won't, why won't Jesus let this poor guy just attend his dad's funeral? Maybe because it hasn't happened yet. He's not saying, look, my dad just died. We've got to finish the arrangements. Then I'll, then I'll be right there. No, he's saying, I'm going to stay at home and look after the affairs of the family estate with my father and so forth. And when my father passes and the inheritance is then properly divided up among us, then maybe I'll have a little more freedom and I could follow you. 
There are all kinds of good reasons that we might hesitate. And yet Jesus says this is a matter of life and death. This is a matter of stepping toward the kingdom and extending eternal life to the people that he calls us to or busying ourselves about the matters of death in a dying world. Jesus is not saying, no, you can't go to your father's funeral. He's saying, how long will you continue to be so entangled in the affairs of this life that you have no time for eternity? So Jesus has authority over the, uh, he heals the crowds. He has authority over the spirits. They're, they're now going to the other side. And he said, let us go to the other side. That's important in verse 18 that he says that. Let's go to the other side because then they're going to go to the other side. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves and he was asleep. That's interesting, isn't it? When the boat is being swamped by the waves, this is the big storm, it's tossing this way and that way. This is the time to be worried. This is the time to be scared. The boat is going down, and it may be that the disciples cannot swim. That's quite likely. And certainly they couldn't swim all the way to shore from three miles out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And it's stormy, and the waves are huge, and they're crashing over the bow and flooding the and they're bailing like crazy. And Jesus is sleeping. Well, that tells me he's not worried. Jesus said, let's go to the other side. And they, they, they went and they woke him saying, save us, Lord, for we are perishing. Maybe Jesus wasn't worried because he knew he could walk on water. But Jesus isn't really one to think merely about himself, is he? He's not worried for any of them, even when they are. He said to them, why are you afraid, O oh, you of little faith? Didn't I say? See, faith is not just a warm, happy belief in what you hope will happen. Faith is a confidence that what God has said, he's going to do. Jesus said, let us go to the other side. And when Jesus says we're going over, we are not going under. Why are you afraid, O oh, you of little faith? When he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. I love that. He says, peace, be still. There's a hymn, be still my soul. Be still my soul, the, the winds and waves still know the voice of him who ruled them while he was below. Yeah, I don't know your storm, but I know who rules the winds and the waves. Even from a distance, no matter the distance, and they marveled. What sort of man is this? This is the center, by the way, of the whole episode. Chapter 8 and 9, all of it together. It's framed by other episodes. And this is the center. That this man, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? You see, humanity was created in the image of God to act as, to stand. That's why we are upright. To stand upright as regents of God over his creation. We are not to dig holes for ourselves in the midst of the ground. We are to cut down trees and make cabins. We are to take charge of and to alter our environment. That's something of the image of God in us. That's a good thing. That's right and normal. But who is this man who does that to a much greater degree than any of us could ever imagine? Who is this that any 
I mean, I try that all the time, especially with the rain. Just stop it, would you? And the rain, rain, rain came down, down, down. It didn't change. It never listens to Bob. But it listens to Jesus. He is the one who can command all of creation because he's the one that spoke it into existence. And he's the one who still, by the breath of his mouth, holds it all together. That's the kind of authority he has. So Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom will I be afraid? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom will I be afraid? Nobody. I need not fear. Because this is the one who said, I will be with you always. Then as they go on, they get to the other side, and there they come to the region of the Gadarenes. And uh, there now in Matthew's account, there are two, de- there are two demonized men. Now here it says demon-possessed men in verse, verse where are we at? Verse 28. But one author made the point, you know, demons don't possess anything. Demons certainly do not possess people. People do not belong to demons. And the Greek word is simply a participle built on the noun demon. And and so the best way to translate that would be demonized. There's no hint of possession in the word, but we get this, this, this idea, this concept from the fact that often the demonized person is under great influence of and controlled by, and sometimes the demon actually will speak directly through and act out through the person as if they have lost all control, and the demon is now in complete control, and so he's Controlled or possessed. Even controlled would be a better word than possessed because possessed implies ownership, and they do not. But these are men who are demonized terribly. And so terribly that they are, are, have been chained up outside the camp, outside the town to try to protect the townspeople from them. Maybe to keep them from harming themselves as well. But they break the chains They are so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cry out. They know who he is. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the pigs. And he said to them, Go. And everybody wants to know, Why the pigs? Don't you? I don't really know. Let's just get that on, on, on the table right now. I'm not really sure. It could be this, is the, this is, the, is the traditional tribal allotment of the half-tribe of Manasseh. And so it could be that these actually are Jewish people. They're not supposed to be pig farmers at all. Pigs are unclean. But there's a great Roman market for pork. Maybe they're choosing prosperity over faithfulness, and the Messiah will not tolerate uncleanliness among his people in his kingdom. And so the pigs need to go. If, if the, uh, when a demon is cast out, it's said that he wanders through vast open spaces, and if nothing else fills the place of the person that he was cast out, then they might again return because demons apparently, spirit powers apparently want some place to dwell. They want to inhabit. They want a room. And so Jesus offers them the pigs instead. Or they, they suggest it and Jesus says, fine, but then what happens to these demons when the pigs go over the cliff? I'm not sure. There's more questions here than I have answers to, but I think if we focus on the pigs... Maybe the questions linger because of our tendency to focus on the pigs 
instead of the people. You see, Jesus' attention is not on the pigs. Jesus is not worried about the pigs. Jesus is worried about these two men. Everybody else in town are worried about the pigs. Folks, if I were to draw the analogy again about what matters most, eternal or temporal, the things of daily life, and we have to be concerned about the things of daily life, but in the affairs of daily life, we are rubbing shoulders with people that need to know Jesus for eternity. All of this will perish. All of this will sooner or later fall off of a cliff somewhere. And yet, those who have faith in Jesus will have an eternal dwelling place. They will be gathered around Abraham's table, as Jesus described it. And we, we do a great disservice to the gospel if we are more worried about the pigs than the people. If we are more worried about the affairs of this life and how we will feather our nest and care for ourselves materially now instead of, Lord, what would you have me to do? You see, only Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Look at chapter 9. Getting into the boat again. They said, would you please leave us? We, we're, we're not even going to worry about who you are. Would you please leave us? And so Jesus does. Getting into a boat, he crossed over again, came to his own city, and behold, some people brought him a paralyzed man lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And that stirred up another hornet's nest. Who do you think you are? Who gave you the right to forgive sin? Well, Jesus says, my father did. He, the son of man, he says, in fact, he says, I say this. They, they said he's blaspheming, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and walk? Which of those two statements is easier to say? Well, I, I, could, I could pronounce to somebody, your sins are forgiven. And any of you looking at the person say, well, how do we know? You don't know just by looking at the person that their sins are forgiven. Well, you could, what I recommend, exercise this week. Ask a few people that you know that you're not sure about. Hey, are your sins are forgiven? That could start a great conversation. You know, I just learned in church that you can't look at somebody and tell if that's true or not. So I was just wondering. Eh, who knows where that conversation will go? But it's easy to say that. It's easy for a person to say, oh, sure, my sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven, but what about for the paralyzed man, for Jesus to stay publicly in front of everybody, rise up and walk? Oh, well, that's, that's a little harder to say because that we can measure. That we can validate. That we can observe. And so that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralyzed man, rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. And we're all focused on the paralyzed man walking, and again, we've missed the point of the story. The only reason Jesus has him stand up, pack up his bed, and go is so you'll know that Jesus has the authority to forgive sin. That which you're, which you're ashamed of, that which I hide away and desperately don't want anybody to find out about. Jesus is able to forgive it, to wipe it clean. That's what we celebrate at this table. Jesus is able, he has the authority to separate us as far as the east is from the west. So far has he removed our transgressions from us. He has the authority to do that. 
And he, and he demonstrates in the healing, there's all kinds of excitement about healing today, which cannot last. You, know, you even go to Lazarus in John chapter 11, and one of the reasons I wonder, Jesus weeps in Lazarus chapter 11, or rather John chapter 11, the story of Lazarus. Jesus weeps there, and there's, I think there's a lot of reasons. His heart is touched with the grief he's surrounded by, but maybe, just maybe, he's also sorry that he has to bring Lazarus back into this mess. Think about it. Lazarus has died. Lazarus' is, is spirit has left that frail, mortal, wretched body of corruption and is resting with Abraham and others waiting to be in the presence of the Lord at Jesus' resurrection. We gotta get him back here. Come on, Lazarus. You got a few more people to tell, a few more, few more uh, gospel witnesses to stir up here. The church is gonna be grateful for a th- couple of thousand years to come, and we are. And yet, we are we are worried about the healings. We are worried about those kind of temporary things. When the point of the story is simply this: Jesus can forgive your sin. Not only that but he will. He really, truly will. Some of you would say, okay, yeah, I get that. I I, I see that through the Bible, that the forgiveness of sins can be found in Jesus. But what about me? What about mine? Would Jesus forgive my sin? You don't know what I've done, Pastor. No, I don't. You don't know what I've done. And he will. He will. Really. That's what we see in the next He calls a man, Matthew, sitting at his tax booth, and he says to him, follow me, and he rose up and followed him. As Jesus reclined at a table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclined. You know what Matthew does? Matthew, we're going to pack this from some of the other Gospels, Matthew is so delighted in Jesus who has called him and forgiven him that Matthew has what we in another church called a Matthew party. He has a party and invites all of his friends and he invites Jesus. Why? Because he wants them to know this Jesus that he now knows. And you say, well, okay, I'll have a Matthew party, but will Jesus come? Well, sprinkle in, choose a few of your Christian friends to include in your Matthew party, and Jesus will be there, Right? Jesus will be there in his disciples. Choose them well. Don't choose the ones that are in a little trouble with these heathens. You know, I don't really spend a lot of time with pagans. I don't know what to do. I mean, if they ask for a beer or they brought their own, I'm just going to flip out. So you need to ask people that can handle themselves around people who don't know yet what it is to be forgiven but who will graciously tell of the wonderful mercy the Lord has poured out on them and he will share with you as well. Have a Matthew party. Invite some friends over. One of the problems with, with the church today is we, we, we can be so good at, and maybe this is, a, this is a good plug for Dinners for Seven, we can be so good at connecting together that we don't connect with other people around us who need us, who need to know something of Jesus through us. We need to do both. We need to connect together. We need to uh, fellowship together and share life together, have a true community among believers, but not merely for ourselves, but to be a light on a hill that other people can see, that others can rub shoulders with, and to invite them in that they might share in the riches that we've been given. 
Oh, the list goes on. Jesus has, has authority to forgive sins. He has authority to bring about, about um, kingdom blessings of restoration. There is this woman that he's on his way now to somebody else's house. Let's see, we're now in verse 18. Jumping ahead, uh, in verse 18, a ruler came in and knelt before him by saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Wow. Are these stories kind of ramping it up a bit? Is it kind of going to the next level here? Here you have a, his, his daughter has died. By distance earlier, the centurion's servant was paralyzed, but now this, this man's, he's a ruler as well, and his daughter has died. Come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to himself, if only I touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, seeing her. He said in one of the other gospels, Jesus uh, speaks out, who touched me? And the disciples were like, what? What do you mean? The crowd's pressing in on us all around. What do you mean? Who touched you? Everybody's touching you. No, 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 this was different. Somebody touched me believing. And he knew. And Jesus turned and he saw her. And he said, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And Jesus comes to the ruler's house and saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion. These are the professional grievers that had been, had been gathered in to mourn. And he said, go away for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. They mocked him. Oh, what do you mean? We know a dead person when we see a dead person. She is dead. She is not mostly dead. She is all dead. Some of you get it. But when the crowd had been put outside, don't listen to them. He went in and he took her by the hand. He told her child to rise. And the girl arose and the report went out everywhere. You can imagine. It went out everywhere. He gives new life. He gives new life where there was only death. He has the authority to bring about kingdom blessings of restoration. He raises the dead. He heals the blind. Uh, he, the, the dumb speak and the poor have the gospel preached to them. John the Baptist is going to send a representative. Are you the Messiah or should we look for somebody else? He said, well, look around. What do you see? The dead are raised. The lame walk. The blind see. The, the mute now speak. Oh, don't forget the, um, the, um, the leper was cleansed. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. What do you think? What does the scripture say? Yes, see, what Matthew is, is proving here, demonstrating in experience, Jesus is God's king. He is the Messiah. He is the son of the living God. He has authority to forgive. He has authority to bring about the kingdom's blessings. Who is Jesus? He is God's king. He has the rational messianic credentials. He fills the squares. He meets the qualifications. On a cognitive, intellectual level, we can get that. But... What I wanted to end with this morning is look what kind of king he is. Jesus is God's coming king. But look what kind of king he is. He's the king who touched the leper. Nobody does that. Nobody touches leper. You touch a leper, you become unclean. You'll be outside also. No, no, no. Jesus touches the leper and brings the leper in. 
The one who is outcast and without hope and without God, without anyone else who gives a... Jesus touches him. Jesus is the kind of king that puts people before prosperity. In Jesus' administration, it is much more than the economy, stupid. It's much more than that. It's about people and wholeness of life and what we were made to be in relation to the Father. Jesus serves even in the midst of mocking and ridicule. He doesn't, he doesn't gather glory for himself, but he seeks rather to quietly go about glorifying his Father. He forgives he not only forgives, but he embraces sinners. Why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So if there are any here this morning that you are righteous, you are a good person all by yourself, you don't need God's forgiveness, then this Jesus is not for you. Because he only came to call sinners to himself and to embrace them. So if you're here and you're guilty, if you're here and you have sinned, if you have fallen short of the glory of God, if you knew what God would have you to do and you have not done it, if you knew what, what, what God would have you not do and you've been there, and again, you need his forgiveness. I need his forgiveness. We, like people outside, are broken people in a broken world desperately in need of this Savior. Not only will he forgive you, he will love to and loves you. He's, he is the king who notices that woman in the crowd who had suffered for 12 years. Do you feel lost in the crowd? Jesus knows. And not only that, but he is the one, he is the king who invites us into his greatest work. He goes to all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And when he saw the crowds, he saw them. He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The stuff of life will do that to you. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus is the kind of king. He is God's king, but he is the kind of king who invites us, us as a church, you and I individually. He invites us into his greatest work of sharing the gospel of forgiveness in Jesus who died for us and rose again. Of telling that to ourselves and, and, and telling that to everybody. That's what we do at this table. That's what we do through these elements each time we celebrate it each month. Jesus comes to restore humanity according to God's promise to Abraham from the fall, from spiritual demonic oppression, through forgiveness of sin to bring about the re restoration of all things, he calls us to be a part of it. And like I said, we do that not only out there, we do that in here. You and I desperately need to tell ourselves and to tell one another the gospel. You need to hear again this morning that Jesus can forgive you, will forgive you, loves to forgive you and embrace you. We take these elements, we remind ourselves again that personally, individually, we have taken this bread, which is his 
flesh, his human body offered in death in our place. We drink this cup, we reminded ourselves that not merely just Jesus died for us out there, but we have received that individually, personally. That Jesus poured out his blood. He gave his life in my place, in your place, for our sin. Together, but individually. That's why we do this.